You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. We are live, okay. finally, only 15 minutes late. After... After we got together 15 minutes early, no less. Yeah, We're still I know. 15 minutes late. So next time we'll we'll start at 8:30. <laughs> yeah, I know. What you been up to, Vadim? How's your Friday? Ooh, Friday's busy, man. It was a busy Friday, and now it's pouring outside. When it's raining outside, that's my favorite time to be in the studio. Oh, really? Just like working on stuff. Yeah, because I get like FOMO of like I hear people <laughs> outside throwing footballs around. I'm like, I should be outside. I should have some friends. Yeah. But if it's raining. That's the great equalizer. I can just sit in here on my MIDI keyboard and <laughs> just make beats. I love it. So anyway, man. that's my Friday. I'm uh, I'm settling in. I'm gonna I'm gonna think I'm gonna work on some music tonight. After this, what about you? I think the same thing. I was messing around with a riff right before um we did this live stream here. Um, I was feeling it, so I might go back to that and do the same. Nice. Yeah. Well, for those, uh, for people joining in, Andy, if you have any questions, DIY recording related comments, want to hype up a project that you're working on, share it with us. Uh, we'd love to hear it. And if not, we'll just, uh, I don't know, keep bantering. Just uh, keep bragging about how we may finally have gotten Facebook Live figured out. Although, oh my gosh. it's debatable whether I'll be able to, to tell you the steps I took to get to this point yeah yeah i think we might have to you know i'll even pose this to the group or the people watching um you know now and later we might decide to do instagram more than facebook in the future so if you guys are down <laughs> with that yeah i know instagram is way easier than this so knowing you you probably try to go live on on all three of them at the same time <laughs> I, I actually ordered a second phone today just so i could do more than one <laughs> Nice. No, just kidding. Cool, man. Well, let's. Um, I think we had a couple things offline we we talked about that we thought might be cool to uh, to share here. So I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you start. Yeah, sure. So what's the first topic <laughs> on your list as questions come in? The thing I wanted to talk about, or that I'm most excited to talk about, is uh, we did a podcast that hasn't gone live yet. Um, this is about uh, acoustics 101. So that's Monday, yeah. yeah, that's coming out um, this Monday, right? Yep. Yep. So stay tuned for that. It was a good episode. But in the end of that, you, uh, I don't even know if we were talking about this during the podcast or in our bantering before or after, but you talked about uh, using reference software or, or room correction software, I guess I should say. And you specifically. Yes. And I talked about it the last time we went live as well. Yeah. And I think I, I finally convinced you to. To do the demo, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you were sending me some some late night text messages. So <laughs> so divulge. Well, before you get to that, I just want to give my perspective on things first because I'm a little bit um, I can be a little bit stubborn when it comes to gear. Uh, like you know, I'm setting my ways, and I'm like, ah, and my speakers are good. I'm comfortable with my room. I don't need I don't need something like that. So. <laughs> I just figured that it would be, you know, it's it just sounds gimmicky to me. You know, I don't know how you felt about it going going into it. Did you feel the same way? Like this is probably gimmicky or or did you Yeah. Okay. No, absolutely. Yeah. So in fact, yeah, I, I bought 
I bought the reference microphone from Sonarworks, planning to use it with Rumi Q Wizard, which I had used before, and it came with a free trial. So that yeah, I was also skeptical. Okay. So and I also well before we get into talking about that, so just just my my raw impressions of it. Um, so just from you hyping it up, I'm like, I oh, mean, I really gotta, I really gotta try this, like at least on headphones. So the first thing I did was install it on my laptop, and um, I plugged in my, uh, I have open backed headphones really similar to you, uh, Sennheiser 58X. I think you have the 600, right? Yeah, I always forget 600, 600 or yeah, 600. Okay. So, um, and the Sonar Works they come with already pre-packaged into the software there's like 200 different presets for professional reference uh headphones and so those headphones were already on there that they had measured the frequency response to so um i just picked that setting and you know i put on some of my favorite music and tunes that i like to listen to and i just tried listening to them with the the eq correction on them and I was like, huh, that is really interesting. Like, stuff sounds a lot clearer. Like, the vocals sound clearer. The guitars sound, I don't know, more natural. Because the one thing that I like and also hate about those headphones is the the bass response is pretty heavy on them. So you can hear a lot of what's happening, you know, in the low end. Um, but at the same time, I think it suppresses the mid-range and the high end more. So it just kind of seemed like the software kind of fixed all those maybe flaws just with the headphones themselves. Um, hmm. So I was really, I was really intrigued by that. So then I went a step farther, and I don't have the Sonarworks reference uh, microphone because each one of those they calibrate before they send out, which is which is a really nice thing to have. But I do have an omnidirectional Behringer uh, microphone that I use to take my Room EQ Wizard settings a long time ago when I was installing the acoustic panels in my room. So I just used that um, and I found a EQ curve, like an average EQ curve for those microphones online and I used that uh, as the calibration for the software. So it isn't specific to the microphone but it's probably pretty close. And I went through the setup with my speakers in my room and I went ahead and I played one of my favorite songs that I use for referencing and I think my jaw hit the floor as soon as I hit play and like I just I've never so quickly made a decision like within seconds I was like how much does it cost <laughs> $300 take all my money this is yeah man like yeah I can't I can't even believe it and um in that episode that we recorded that's coming out I remember talking about how I felt like there's a problem in my room at 100 hertz where there's probably a null point. And mm -hmm. just from seeing what the uh, Sonarworks is doing to the EQ curve in my room, it's crazy because I have an extreme boost. It's like a probably a 9 decibel boost right at 50 hertz. So the kick drum, drum sounds awesome. And then right, <laughs> right next to it at 100 hertz, there's like a 6 decibel cut in my room. So my sub bass frequencies are like out of control, like super loud. And then right where bass guitar likes to sit at a hundred Hertz, it was all scooped out. And I always have trouble in my room 
uh, getting the bass to mix in correctly. And it's because it's kind of buried and hidden in there. But once I put on the sonar works and the reference uh, room correction EQ, like I instantly could hear bass like I've never heard before. Mm. Like I was trying to describe to my wife what it felt like. And I don't know, from an audio perspective, it felt like I've been trying to do all this stuff (laughs) Like, I've been trying to do all this stuff not knowing that I needed glasses and then just trying on a pair of glasses for the first time. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. I was mindful of that when I, when I ran my test of how much it was boosting in any given frequency range because I read, and this is, gonna, this is my caveat for this whole software, but I've read that excessive boosts I mean, think about what's happening physically is that software is driving some frequencies. If you had a dip in your room at 100 hertz, that means it has to send more 100 hertz to your monitors to make up for that. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that can be stressful on your, on your monitor drivers. Uh, so I was conscious of that. And the software actually lets you put clamps um, on that band. So like telling the software, don't boost above this much. Now, my room, like your room was already pretty in pretty good shape. I didn't have anything more than 60B off center line. Yeah. So I feel comfortable with the boosts that it's applying. But this is my caveat for this whole thing, because people, I think we've, we've both raved about this now. Yeah. This is really the cherry on top to an acoustic treatment plan. You can't just go into a room with bare walls and think that like a software is going to magically solve your problems. It's not. Yeah. But it's going to take you that extra just like, 10 yards there from the red zone. Red zone's 20 yards, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Football's, yeah. <laughs> it's been too long since we've had sports. But anyway, yeah, it's going to it's gonna give you that final extra push to, uh, to good sound. So yeah, man, that was my experience too. I was like skeptical. I tried it with some reference mixes and then I tried it on some of my mixes and instantly could hear little things that I was like, oh yeah, I need to fix that. And I will tell you now, since we filmed that or um, recorded that first Facebook Live where I talked about it, I've been using this on mixes and I find that I trust myself a lot more than I used to. So I used to always, it was like written in stone. I would never send a mix out to a client before listening to it in my car. Yeah, I know my car. I've had my car for a decade and that was my tried and true test. It's got a subwoofer. So anyway, now I find that I'm slowly starting to trust myself listening on just my monitors, like not even different sets of headphones. I'm finding that my mixes translate already really well. So that's awesome. I mean, honestly, that justifies it. If I could save myself time doing mixes, like it's already kind of worth it. You know? It's just like a- so I'm curious. I'm curious to know what your uh, experience will be like, you know, four weeks from now or something. Yeah, like me too. Because like I've been using the heck out of it. But even from just an enjoyment like standpoint, because I've been, I was just looking at a pair of $600 Focal like reference headphones. Um, to add to my collection of headphones. One, because I'm a little obsessed with headphones, but two, because kind of the goal that I have in my studio is like, I prefer to mix on my studio monitors because they're the nicest, but I want right. a whole bunch of different speakers to reference to see if my mixes are translating, you know, because right. each pair of headphones sounds, I have five nice pair of headphones and they all sound drastically different from one another. <laughs> it is a lot. I mean, they're not super nice. They're between like a hundred to two hundred dollar range, you know. So, yeah, semi professional. I'm not breaking the bank or anything like that, but um, I'm just looking for more ways to reference, you know, what's what's going on because I know that 
this certain pair of headphones boosts the bass so much, or this pair of headphones makes the vocals really forward. So my idea was, oh, if I get a big enough collection I can reference and I know that they're going to translate really well. Well, this reference software takes all that out of the equation um, because I know that it it's it's actually making it sound the way that it's supposed to sound. And I feel like I'm, you know, hearing music the way it was supposed to be reproduced, like on my, yeah. on my system, like it's just way more enjoyable. Um, and it, it places everything in the mix, uh, in the correct positions too, because a lot of my mixing process was, um, referencing other, uh, you know, professionally produced tracks just to see where everything fit. And I always struggled. Well, not only did I struggle with uh, bass guitar, but maybe with vocal placement, I always kept my vocals a little bit too quiet. And the other thing I noticed too in my room is that um, the reference software is boosting, like there's like a high shelf put on my high end, about three, hmm. three decibels. And I'm wondering if the reason is, is I have so much uh, high bandwidth acoustic treatment in my room to, to help control the low end that it is controlling the low end, but acoustic panels are, uh, you know, if they're thick enough to help control the low end, they're controlling all the frequencies above that. So I actually think it's probably dampening all of the high end in my room too, because I don't really have any diffusion. I just have absorption. That's interesting. You know, I want to ask Yesco about that because my thought process is, and this is, Yesco's thought experiment that I love is that if you just had a set of monitors in a field with no reflection points, you would be hearing the true sound of those monitors and the monitors should be reproducing whatever high end is in the music. So I don't know if like absorption, too much absorption would deaden the high end response of your monitors. That, that would be interesting. Um, so one of the things, I mean, you probably did, although I don't remember. The calibration process, I think they have you hold the microphone just up to the woofer, not up to the tweeters, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I wonder. That's a good question. That's interesting. I don't know, yeah. That's interesting that you have a high shelf like that. I'm not sure what that means. But in, in effect, though, in effect, what's happening, though, too, is that um, be, whenever it shelved everything like that, the vocals instantly popped in, like, every single mix that I listened to once the calibration was on. And so mm. when I compare that to like what I, the way I was working before, uh, it makes sense why I was keeping my vocals too quiet because every song I listened to in my studio, the vocals sounded more buried because it was, my room is just low end heavy. And, gotcha. and so I guess the reason why I wanted to bring this up, even though we're more recording guys than we are mixing guys, uh, it shows the importance of, acoustic treatment in a room um especially from picking tones and you know knowing what you're listening to is of such vital importance to know like to actual actually have a uh, uh an unbiased ear towards you know what you're capturing when you're recording yeah it just proved it even it just proved it even more to me you know use using that because i've heard people rate i mean People hammer so much um, that have worked in this industry for a long time and, it's, and are successful about the importance of controlling, you, you know, and having a flat frequency response in your room. And, I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs> so, 
So I don't think I'm ever going to buy a new pair of headphones again after that. Wow. So see, this is actually an investment. You're actually going to save money. Yeah. In the long run. It's true. <laughs> we'll see, Ben. I know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So that's all I had to say. I just wanted to, you know, to um, talk about that a little bit because it was, I've never, I don't think I've had an experience like that in all my years of music. Like that, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement to say, but like, I, I've not had like a come to Jesus moment like that in audio <laughs> before. That was pretty crazy. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my other, my only other moment like that, that I can recall was when I got the monitors that I have now. What are you using now? I upgraded now? from like, like, um, I used to have like the M audio whatevers <laughs> that you see. At, I remember the like one. I, w- I remember the whatevers. Yeah, the whatever's size three or whatever. Anyway, so I got them at, you know, they're like the ones you could get at Guitar Center or anywhere else. And they're fine. They're perfectly fine monitors. But I got the Neumann KH-120s. And, like, the first time I sat down and listened to music on that, I had that same feeling of, like, oh, my God. I've never heard these songs before in my life yeah. the way I'm hearing them now. So, um, yeah, and similar with, um, it was a smaller boost, but, like I said, my, my my mixes have been translating much better over the last month or so. I'm I'm pretty happy about that. That's great, man. What else? What else is going on? I don't know. I mean, you sent me a really interesting article about um, Spotify and royalties. That was interesting. To I don't know how much that applies really to anybody in here because I I was just talking to my wife about this and and saying how like you know if you're to the if you're to the point in your band where you're actually making decent money from Spotify or streaming, you've already got a team of people that are doing that behind the scenes for you. But Mm. it's still an interesting conversation to have nonetheless about, you know, how do those royalties actually get distributed and and what's going on behind the scenes and how can you, I don't know, capitalize on um, getting an investment back from the music you put out into the world uh, and maybe yeah well Well, go ahead yeah 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 it's i mean it's just it's just understanding i agree with you i mean i i think it's something that broadly affects the music industry that people just should kind of be aware of yeah aware of i mean there's this there's this you know we hear these statistics of like spotify pays so many fractions of a of a you know of a cent per stream it's like 0.0003 that's the stuff I've always heard. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like a lot. They should pay more. And that's true, perhaps. But this yeah. article was bringing up points like, yes, if you calculated it on a per stream basis, you would come up with that calculation. But that's actually not how the payouts work. Yeah, They actually work a little bit differently. And you kind of <laughs> you get that calculation after the fact. And like one statistic I found interesting was that Spotify is using roughly like 70 or say closer to 65% of its revenue as payouts to channels that pay artists basically. Yeah. So they're not paying artists directly. They paying like distribution channels or whatever. Um, and then the artist gets paid from that. But I thought that was really interesting. You know, there's just, I feel like it's easy to kind of, I don't know. I don't fully understand the whole streaming model to be honest with you probably something we should have asked James Cross about. Like, I don't understand how viable it is really as a, as a revenue generation tool for artists. Like can an artist survive an indie artist, not like 
you know, Drake or whatever, but can an indie artist survive on streaming alone without touring, without merch? Like it's questionable. And so that makes you wonder, like, does the model work or should it be fixed? And if it should be fixed, then how? Um, but I think articles like this are really interesting because they get to the, they get past the like, oh, musicians should be paid more. It's like, yes, you're right. But let's talk about how. Right? Yeah. Like Spotify is a business. They make money from users. They're paying out whatever, 65, 70% to artists. They have some overhead they have to cover. So let's talk about how to pay artists more. I thought that was like a really interesting take on it. Probably post the link to it in the, uh, actually, I'll post it right now. In yeah, go ahead. The chat, but we uh, can also... I think the first thing I want to talk about if we dive into this, um, the first thing I want to bring up is actually the last thing uh, that they talked about in the article. Okay. Uh, so they talked about how can we, um, how can we either get more people to buy into paid streaming services so the pool is bigger to share with artists, mm. or how can we raise the price of streaming? What you know, what is a fair what is a fair rate for, um, you know, paying for music? And that's, that's such, right. I mean, a real point. And I think that kind of starts with maybe educating one another or, you know, just with us as artists and people trying to make a living in this business that's, you know, very tough. Um, I think it kind of starts with looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, you know, how much are you willing to invest in, in, your, in yourself or in other artists? You know, because I know... I know so many people, and I don't want to rag on anybody, but I know so many people that, you know, they say that they care so much about music and so much about making their thing a reality, and either they don't want to invest any money into themselves, whether that be, like, good gear to record on. Um, you know, I, ha I just had somebody asking me not too long ago about, you know, what kind of uh, free software can they use to record, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's you know, just realizing that there's limitations to free things. Um, but even on top of like your own music, you know, how much are you willing to invest in other people and, and, um, you know, support your friends and support musicians out there that you're getting so much joy and satisfaction from listening to the hard work that they put into their tunes. Um, I, I mean, I think a lot of people will just stream music from YouTube, you know, or use the free tier of, um, you know, Spotify or whatever. And I can't necessarily fault them for that, but uh, if you're blindly just wishing that things would be different and then you're personally not, you know, doing the things that would make a difference in the world, then it, it just kind of, I don't know, it just seems like a, a vain thing to wish that things would change without being willing to make those changes, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I... <laughs> I mean, just looking from like my personal experience, and I'm not saying that up, I'm I'm not saying that I'm totally free from you know like I've definitely, um, you know, used free streaming services as well and and YouTube for other things you know. So I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of this as well, but I'm just sure. trying to prove a point. But go ahead, what were you trying to say? Yeah, that's exactly kind of kind of what I'm trying to say is that you know what I remember all growing up. I remember, I mean, in like college recently recently as a decade ago i would buy multiple cds a month right so i was spending you know 30 40 dollars a month probably maybe maybe that's a lot let's say 20 30 dollars a month on music yeah. buying you know music from bands i like i would go on amazon and i would uh 
<laughs> play the like the, the clips from the album, and if I thought I like it, I would buy the album, right? So I did that for years, and now I'm paying for a streaming service. I'm paying like 15 bucks a month for a family plan, which means no one, you know, the five people closest to me aren't buying music. And for a while yeah. when I was doing that, if I found a band I really liked, I would go and like actually buy their album. And I stopped doing that slowly, not because I I still think it's the right thing to do, but it's just a, it's a convenience and a time thing. Like I need to remember to go find the album and then buy it and then wait for the CD to like it's just a, it's a hassle. So I think the model has kind of pushed people into this feeling that they don't have to support music. And so That's just my point. personal anecdote was like, well, I used to spend 20, 30 bucks a month on music. Now I'm spending half that and and no one else in my family is buying albums either. Like, so to me, looking at that anecdotal example, which is terrible science because that's one data point, right? But that's telling me like, it's, I'm probably not the only one in that situation. So the overall pie of like how much money people spend on music has gotten smaller. Now, on the other hand, there's a lot of overhead that goes into making a CD that some of which is eliminated it, uh, when you're talking about streaming. So it's cheaper now to release an album via streaming service than it was to like print CDs, right? And yeah. Do all this kind of stuff. So that's helpful. But I like this one quote in this article a lot where they're talking about the kind of $9.99 price point, which is where a lot of the streaming services are per month. And uh, there's this quote that says from this guy, Tom Gray, I actually don't remember who he is, but he's saying, stop saying it's price sensitive. Kids pay eight pounds for a skin in Fortnite and we can't ask for twelve fifty yeah. for the entirety of all recorded music. <laughs> yeah. Give me a, a break. And he's totally right. Like it's insane how much music you have access to. Like you, you never listen to all of it. And yeah, I mean, I like, it should be probably more. It, it should probably cost more to get the streaming that we're getting. But I, I think a lot of that is just like a holdover from, you know, Napster and whatever else when music, like people had this expectation for years that like, yeah, music is free when without really thinking, should it be? So I'm sure those prices will go up. Well, that's an interesting, that's a really interesting example um, with the Fortnite and the skins and stuff like that. Um, the interesting thing about that is, so people are paying what, $8 a skin or whatever, or for $20 for whatever DLC comes out with a video game without even thinking about it. But it's partially because you don't have a choice. You know, if you could just download that or find some, you know, way to pirate it and put it onto your PS4. And I'm sure some really smart people out there know how to do that. But um, people are, are no way going to pay $20 for that stuff. Dude, the, yeah, the video game industry has really figured that out. I mean, I think they've, they've really done a good job of preventing pirating. But I think music, the music industry has done better also. Like, honestly, if I wouldn't know where to go, maybe I'm in, like, I'm not like a, I'm, I'm not a savvy internet user, but if I wanted to download like free MP3s to keep, I don't even know that I would know where to go. I'm sure, I'm sure there's tons of places, but I personally don't. Well, know. it's crazy to College, me. College, I used to know. I don't think that I'm like pulling the cat out of the bag in any way by saying this, but it is so easy to rip MP3s off of YouTube. It's crazy to me. Is that right? But they're all like, they're like kind of crappy quality, aren't they? They're crappy quality, but like most people don't care. You know, like if I compare a YouTube MP3 that I've ripped, I'm like, oh yeah, those symbols sound really washy. Like everything from, you know, 
12 kilohertz and up is really disintegrated. Like, you know, I look at a 16-year-old girl and tell her that, she's going to be like, I don't care. I don't care what you think, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So it's just one of those things where, um, I don't know, the, the music industry is in an interesting place. And like you said, it is doing better. But um, I think that back before Napster happened, the gatekeepers were kind of doing the same thing that you see in like the video game industry. Because I, I can remember, this is kind of dating me a little bit and showing my age, but I can remember going to Walmart or to Sam Goody and sometimes brand new albums would be like over $16. I think somewhere between oh, yeah. the $16 and $20 range. And nobody would pay over probably 12 bucks for an album nowadays or $10, you know, even if they're going to pay for it in, you know, in, in the first place. But the music was probably overinflated at that point, but you had to go to those retailers to get it. So there was no, there was no choice. Like you had to go buy the CD essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I've definitely paid that much for CDs. I mean, I, I'll pay that much today for a digital album if it's like a band on Bandcamp that I love. But yeah. yeah, that's rare. I mean, I'm definitely spending less money on music. Um, so what does that mean? Yeah, that's an interesting question. But I didn't, you know, I, I think people give Spotify a hard time. And I, I think it actually has a lot of potential as a platform to be the greatest thing since sliced bread for musicians. Because if it, they're starting to implement this more, but if it can become a tool for communicating with fans and help you just reach more people through things like playlists or whatever else, if it gives you a, a vehicle for announcing live shows, it can be a really powerful tool. Yeah, I think ultimately it'll be good for the music industry, but it's still hard to know. I mean, it's hard to know how, how to monetize music as an independent musician. That is a, question i just love the mental exercise of you know going through going through your own personal budget like i don't know how many people out there that are watching this actually budget out their finances but you know one one thing i do when i'm making a budget is i set aside some money that's just for you know fun and games my own enjoyment or for you know whatever i want to spend on it or, and then another budget for going out to eat or wherever like that and it's just interesting to look at um, you know, how much of that is going into music and merchandise or for bands or, or live shows, um, any of those things. And like you said, similarly, like that amount that I set, whether that's a reflection on, I'm just not spending as much time going to live shows like I used to when I was younger or, um, or for other reasons, but it just seems like that amount that I've set aside for music or, you know, whether that was, intentionally set aside or just you know money that i just spent on it in the past like it's it's slowly shrinking more and more to mm. the point where like the convenience of well maybe like i don't know there's probably a quote somewhere where somebody says convenience is the enemy of like all things because it just seems that <laughs> the more the more convenient things get the more people just kind of take it for granted and you know that's for me included like music is probably the most important thing in this world to me besides family and, um, you know, like I can't imagine a world without music. I would put such a high value on it. Um, but like I only spend most months $15 a month for my Spotify membership. Like that's, I mean, it's kind of pathetic when you think about it that way. <laughs> 
So, oh, that's a that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, well, um, let's go into some more of the details on that article before we move on, because it is a really it is a really good article, and people should check it out. But the one thing I found interesting to me, and I knew this before, but it they did a really good job of it of explaining it, and that's just how the the whole big pile of money from collected from all the revenue that Spotify gets, how how that actually gets distributed to artists. And it actually goes in terms of all the money gets divided up by all the most plays on Spotify. It's so it's more reflection on who's on the platform actually paying and who's getting played the most and not a reflection of Oh, I listen to this artist so many times a month, so my subscription dollars are going to this specific artist. If that, I don't know if I did a good job of explaining that, but essentially, essentially the way that they're they're saying is that like just because you listen to an artist a lot of time doesn't mean that they're actually getting any any right. money or benefit out of it because you might be the only if you're the only person in the world that's listening to them then they're probably not even getting a dollar a month. Right. So um, there was some talk in that article about, you know, if they switched up the way that the payments were done, it would maybe be a little bit more fair. So just kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. And I wonder, is that true just for Spotify or is the model pretty much the same? Across services, like I think, I know there was I think a it is to do about title for a while, and uh, and I don't know. I think a lot of them are um, a little more secretive too, because they don't have to disclose their finance finances or how things work. So I wonder what the discrepancy is be- between streaming models. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I I think I think the main one though is Spotify, and that's kind of what they're doing with things. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was public. Is Spotify public, publicly traded? Yes, they point? are now. Yeah, so they have to, so that you can dig into some of their numbers. Hey, what's up, Lee? And, uh, My buddy Lee Scott hey, joined. Lee. Uh, is this is this Lee from your origin story? No, different Lee. Okay, <laughs> but Lee has okay. a big part to play in my story as well. He, uh, let's hear. He it. grew up just down the street from me, so. We've we've been in each other's lives for a long time, and uh, he has an equal passion for videography, and he's really good at it too. So we've helped each other no out, way. yeah, a few times. That's clutch, man. It's good to know somebody who who knows video. Um, that's huge. Yeah, it is huge. So Lee, video. if you got any questions, man, throw them in the throw them in the chat here. We'll get to them. I was helping him out today earlier with uh, figuring out how to set up his Nord Pad to play battery samples through his computer so he wanted to use his nord as a midi controller oh yeah so that was it's always interesting setting up that stuff because i i can remember the first time i set up midi controllers in my daw it wasn't very um i don't know i felt like the way i was thinking about it made sense but i had to like read the manual and go through it it was just a frustrating process it's a nightmare it's a nightmare (laughs) connecting stuff this is where like the dark side of digital really comes out is with communication between all these different devices. Yeah. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, you think about like, if I had a tape machine and a thing, I would just like plug them together physically with a wire and it would work. And it's not quite how it works with digital, but there's, 
<laughs> the upside, I think, is well justified. But, uh, yeah, sometimes you're like, why? It should just be a wire. I connect it and it works. I know. I know it should. That's also a, a, a PC thing, I think, because I think Mac's a lot better with that. I was helping somebody set up a home studio with a, with a Mac, and I'd never used a Mac before for this. So I was kind of nervous because I was like, build myself as the expert, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I do. All, yeah, I know audio. I could, whatever. Cubase, Logic, what do you do? I can figure it out. And it was really easy. Like, I didn't have to go through, like, installing drivers or anything like that. I pretty much just plugged stuff into it, and it was like works like it was supposed that's to. true i also make fun of Hopefully. apple users and the reason i really make fun is just because i'm jealous so don't don't anybody take offense to this but <laughs> the way i normally say it is that like apple makes it so easy the plug and play that if it doesn't work the first time for an apple user they just think it's broke and they'll take their whole laptop to the, the apple store like what it doesn't work yeah. but for a pc user you just expect that half the time it doesn't work and you have to problem solve i think i just like being a detective <laughs> oh is that it yeah it just keeps you keeps you sharp yeah just keep me sharp I, it's just the thing that i expect with it so whenever i yeah, yeah. go over to a friend's house that has like a you know a mac set up and it works perfectly the first time i'm just like shaking my head i got i gotta share a funny story okay, go. here this happened to me this happened to me yesterday i was so mad i was working on this mix it's a mix for a 20 minute song okay okay a 20 minute song Jeez. and i was bouncing it out through my analog chain, which means that's one of the downsides of having an analog chain. So I have my mix, and then I send that final mix bus through my analog chain, which has some cool gear in it. So, but because I have to do that, I, it takes me 20 minutes to bounce that track, right? So <laughs> I'm doing, so I'm like, I set it to record and I go upstairs and I forget about it. And then I remember. That every night at 11.45, my computer runs through the sequence no. where it backs itself up to the cloud and then it shuts down. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I got to gotta go stop that. So I run downstairs like 11.30 and I think I catch it. I'm like, cancel the scheduled job, right? And then I'm fooling around with the mix. I'm like tweaking my, my mastering settings or whatever. And all of a sudden, my computer says shutting down on it and just... I never hit save once. No. So I lost I lost a lot of work and I was um I was mad. You never want to go to go to sleep that angry. That's <laughs> not good. No. No. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Yeah. So anyway, that's um cuz you know, I set that up I'm like I'll never be working on music at 11:45 at night. I should be going to bed. Like that's a healthy schedule and and it's bit me a couple times. So anyway, that's yeah, guys, if you're in the chat, leave us your questions or your stories. We'd love to hear them and um, answer anything you got going on. So funny, man. Well, you're in the music industry, so how can – there's there's uh, no way that you could set hours like that, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> in, my, in, in my moments of, like, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to be early to bed, early to rise, that, that's when I set up systems like that. Even when I get, right, in, even when I get inquiries from artists that fill out my website form – it's always at the most crazy times at night. You know, I'll get messages at like 4 a.m. Hey, I found your website. You know, can I can I come in and do some recording? It's just like, it's just the nature of the beast. It's when the artists are up. Yeah, that's true. So Lee's got a question here. This is probably more for you, Ben. Okay. Because if, if I want to do loops live, do I run it through Studio One or should I buy a pedal to run it through? I feel excited like the possibilities are endless. So I guess just a question there is 
what type of loops are we talking about? Are we talking about like electronic loops that you're building live or they're pre-programmed or these like guitar loops you're you're recording? I'm guessing so Lee is a Lee is primarily a drummer, so I'm guessing that he okay. wants to set up some kind of sequences that will loop while he's playing like drums over or something like that. But it's like a, it's like a live thing. We're like building loops live. Right? Like a stack of loops or or are they pre pre-programmed? That's a good and just triggered. Yeah, Lee, if you could expand on that question that would be helpful um so are you building like with the different i'm guess i'm just trying to get inside your head a little bit but with the different um pads so do you have like some loop assigned to each pad and then you can build that and and make it grow throughout that's an interesting that's an interesting question because you definitely could use a looper pedal to kind of do that stuff live so if you had a few different loops that you wanted to play with and wanted to build that sequentially i'm trying to think of if there's a way to do that without a looper pedal involved as well because there's some creative stuff you could do with midi for sure but it would have to be like all pre-programmed in and like kind of a rehearsed performance per se yeah yeah if you have pre-recorded loop blocks there your best bet is to trigger them using MIDI or using a MIDI controller. So you could get like a drum pad, for example, that, you know, you can, the big drum pads that you can hit with a stick and have those tied to a computer running whatever you want, Studio One or Ableton Live, and you can be triggering, you can have your kind of virtual instrument set up where a certain key or a certain pad is mapped to trigger a certain loop. So if you're trying to trigger pre-recorded loops like that, that's probably your best bet. Um, I know Ableton Live is very popular for that because of the way they let you build and, and loops and kind of block them out and structure them together. If you're trying to build loops live where you want to like play a groove and then have that loop while you build stuff on top of it, there's probably, I would be nervous doing that with a computer, although I'm sure there's a way, but there's really cool loop pedals like the Boss, you know, RC30 or whatever that give you a lot of options. Um, also, depends how you want to trigger it. Like, are you trying to trigger it with your feet or because you're drumming? Are you trying to trigger it with your hands? I think those types of questions. Have you, have you had any experience with that, with looping stuff? Uh, yeah, we used then? to, when, when I was playing with Lacey, we would use the Roland SPD FX or whatever. It's that... It's the same pad that every like professional band uses. Um, but we would trigger some parts that would go in through choruses or something like that. Some ba- like that could be hand claps or some type of like dubstep wobble or any kind of sound effect type of thing. But um, the one caveat to that is the way that we had it set up just for convenience sake was uh, our drummer played to a click. So we were all kind of in sync if we didn't have a click in our ears, we were always playing to the drummer. So we were always on tempo. So all of our pads and loops that we had set up would go for like an entire chorus. So we'd have multiple measures of this sample or this pad or this effect happening. So the one um, danger with that is if you make a mistake or go off tempo, that pad keeps going (laughs) or, or you have to turn it off and start it all over again, but there's no way to, to pick that up in mid performance. So I guess the other way of going about that is picking smaller size chunks of loop to, to, to go with. So that's just something you have to think about if you're going to do that kind of stuff live. Um, 
That's true. So it sounds like Lee's actually he's talking about building loops up. So I'm wondering that does that that NordPad doesn't have a loop function. I'm looking at it now online. I don't know which one you have. Like where it keeps like um. Oh no, then yeah, NordPad. So that's just the, that's just a controller. Yeah. So it, it basically is just a yeah, just a trigger. So yeah, you would need to basically whatever. Well, I guess it depends on where your virtual instruments are. So. I don't know Studio One. I I I use Pro Tools. I don't know how you would do that with Pro Tools. Like if you wanted to record a MIDI loop into Pro Tools and then have it automatically loop, that would be tough to do. I don't know if I would trust myself to do that in Pro Tools. If you're using something like a guitar pedal or a loop pedal, at that point you need to have an audio output into that loop pedal, and you're gonna have to be controlling that loop pedal separately, which is gonna be tricky as well. This is a good question. I I wonder. Now, I've seen drummers do this type of thing all the time, and I'm not 100% sure how they do it live. Yeah, because it's a really good question. Damn it. First question we got, and we're stumped. Well, I'm trying to think. Okay, <laughs> so I'm trying to rack my brain because I messed around with this stuff a lot. I'm wondering if in battery, because I know that he's using battery or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the other person that joined Nathan Matrunik, he also knows Lee, so that's funny in the chat. <laughs> um but uh anyways um we actually all used to play in a band together i just i totally forgot about that no that way. was like a fun like um that was a fun little project but anyways um there might be a way in battery to set your samples so if you're using the nord pad as a midi controller there might be a way in battery to set each sample um that's mapped to your midi pad to repeat indefinitely or toggle that on and off as a setting. So if you hit a certain loop, once that goes, it's going to keep looping that loop until you hit the pad again to turn it off. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a setting. That's worth looking into. Yeah, that's... Um, I don't know. I would guess something like Ableton Live is probably better suited for that. But then battery is... Is that a hardware That's piece? That's a native instrument, like um, hip-hop beat kind of sample library. It's like contact, but a, for beats. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, that's... I'm always nervous. I, I do see people more and more using DAWs live, like Pro Tools and Studio One, but the, the, the way I see, like, big bands do this, like Periphery, right, is they will have a... They're playing to a click track, and they will have... MIDI triggered from that click. Like the click track is in the DAW and then there's a MIDI track in the DAW and the MIDI is doing different stuff. It's already pre-programmed. Yeah. I don't know that I've seen anybody use DAWs like that live. I would be kind of nervous doing that. For I would be... Especially with Pro Tools. I would be nervous kind of too nervous. just because the more third-party programs that you have open in an, a DAW, like there's just more of a danger of your DAW crashing because there's they're just so complicated and there's so many different things happening. So, yeah, I would, I'd feel mostly comfortable running it, but you've also, I don't know. You also have to have a back, backup plan in case like if you're in the middle of a live show and something happens, you got to be able to keep going. And that either means you can play without the samples or you have a backup system. Like, I don't know. Your phone has some of the loops on it that you can just hit play real quick I'm, I'm getting nervous just thinking about it. <laughs> <I know. laughs> 
Well, I reckon I think the, I can remember talking to some of these bigger bands, like even the bigger bands, like with their ridiculous setups. I think the one in particular that I'm thinking of is, do you know that band Nothing More? Have you heard of them before? Really good band. No. They're really good bands. Um, it's kind of like uh, active rock genre, Papa Roach, but more modern, and they've got like a crazy ridiculous setup. So like. Their whole setup, I think, is controlled by one of those Persona Studio Live consoles. So, like, all of their all of their effects go through the console and through a Studio One DAW that's being run off of a computer. And their whole setup costs, like, you know, thousands of dollars just to run all of their effects and stuff like that. So, right. just in case that fails live, because that's... I mean, it's controlling all of the vocal delays and reverbs and guitar effects. Yeah. They have a duplicate of that entire system. So, like, I, I think both systems cost, like, in excess of, like, 10 grand. But they have, like, a, an, an exact, like, carbon copy of that just in case something goes wrong live. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to. Good question, though. I, I love that question. Yeah. I, I think from a reliability standpoint, if you're a solo musician doing loops, some of these dedicated loopers are going to be your best bet, mm -hmm. something like a Boss product or something like that. I probably would trust those more. Um, but yeah, I've seen um, I've seen things go wrong. I had this one artist that I like a lot. It's called That One Guy. Have you heard of him? I don't think I've heard of him. That One Guy. He's, Good name. He's a he started out as a bass player, but he has this amazing live show. I've seen it probably a dozen times where he built his own kind of bass instrument where it's like a pipe with a big string on it, almost like an upright bass. And he's got two strings of different lengths. Okay. And then he's got all these all these MIDI controller buttons, and he's like a one-man band. Oh, does he play with Victor which, Wooten? Uh, he has, I've yeah. seen videos and, like, of him. Les Claypool. His, his stuff is good because it's not, it sounds gimmicky, but his albums are actually really listenable. It's kind of dubstep-y. Like, it's like very, like, kind of, he's got a good groove, like a trap groove. And he's playing the drums with his feet. But anyway, the reason I bring it up is because he's got all these MIDI controllers all over his thing. And at some point in his life, because I've seen him for the last decade, I see him every time he comes around, he incorporated video into his setup in a really cool way where he's got these two projectors that are pointing at screens behind him. And every time he hits like a certain MIDI controller, he like restarts the loop. So he's got all these cool like cartoons that are kind of timed with the music. And he had like the one time, like the whole system crashed on him. <sighs> And he was scrambling and like his sound guys over there and they're like trying to restart his computer. And it was just like, ah, yeah, it's tough, man. When it works, it's awesome. But <laughs> when it goes wrong, it's painful. Yeah. Yeah. The more, um, the more like pieces of equipment that you throw into the pie like that, like the, the higher your chances of things going wrong. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. The more complexity you introduce. I like the idea. So it would definitely be simpler to just kind of set up you know, a single, you know, a hit and forget type of thing and, and just, I guess, learn your show so that, let's say you're, it's almost like playing with backing tracks. That would probably be the easiest way to go, but there's something to be said for like those dedicated loopers because I think it just looks more impressive and cool to see the musician doing more. It, it just, it gives a sense of like, oh, the musician's actually doing this. He's not, he's not that just relying cool. on this other thing as a, as a crutch. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. It's hard, man. Looping is a is definitely a skill. I, I got a looper at some point and I was like, I had this 
album I did with my wife actually as a singer, and it was all it was very electronicy. But I was I had this vision of like I'm going to arrange all of these songs so that I can play every part on an acoustic guitar and like loop them and just have her sing. And we were gonna develop this live oh, act. Cool. And I bought this looper and I started playing around with it. I was like, I can't loop anything. It's so hard. <laughs> it takes, if you're off takes by a, lot a of split practice, second. Right? Yeah, and I got I got better as I practiced. I thought it was going to be easy because you see people do it on stage so effortlessly. It was hard, but I definitely got started getting better and better. And then I kind of scrapped the project because it was just <laughs> taking up too much time. <laughs> you spent you were spending more time learning the looping pedal than you were working on the songs. That's when you know to hang it yeah, up. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. My heart wasn't in it. So what else do you want to talk but about? I love that stuff, man. Yeah. Um. I don't know. We got any other. God, I didn't see any other questions. Guys, drop your questions in the uh, in the chat here. Questions or just comments? Anything you want to just, talk about? Yeah, anything you want to talk about. We're just kind of not quite even brainstorming. Yeah, shooting the breeze. Brain, brain, just brain drizzling. I've been mixing a lot with, um, not just mixing, but recording a lot using the Neural DSP plugins that I just bought. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I love them so much. They sound so good. Yeah, what's your what's your current favorite? I'm using the the base dark glass thing, so I have that pedal. Actually, I can show you. It's right, right in front of me. I didn't plan this, but <laughs> shameless plug, the B7K. Ooh, okay. I love that thing. Um, that's like such a signature part of my tone. Like I don't think I could play without that. And Neural DSP, they made a clone of the Ultra, which has a couple more controls than the than the B7K version that I have. Um, what 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 does it have that the pedal doesn't have? It has a, a, it has a separate. Let me take a look here. Uh, it has a selectable frequency, like a three-way toggle for the high and low mids. So on okay. this pedal, the frequencies are already set. You can't adjust them from gotcha. where they are. But on the the ultra, you can. And when I play through it, man, it's just like. I don't need my three thousand dollar rig. I can just plug into this plug-in. I know it's scary. yeah, it's scary. Very good. Kaden. Yeah, I've, I've I've liked it a lot. I did a mix. Um, the first time I did it, reamping solely using plugins, and there's a bunch of guitar parts. And I used, I thought, I'll just try this. I used my my left all my all my left guitars. Clean and distorted. I did with the uh, the Nolly one. I love and that one. All my right guitars. I did with the um, the Tosin one, Abasi, and it sounded good. It sounded really good. I was really happy with how it came out. So, and the band was pretty happy too. They were like, "Oh, these are great guitar tones. Like, yeah, they're pretty good." But I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna, for my own band, I am gonna develop a tone. With the uh, the the PV sixty five oh five MH, I'm looking at it because it's a lot. But that thing does sound pretty fierce. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna what it, what is that head? A sixty five, sixty five oh five MH. It's the mini head version of the sixty five oh five. And it sounds pretty brutal. I mean, it doesn't really do cleans, but yeah, <laughs> but but it does high gain pretty well. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do my uh, my seven string stuff. Oh, by the way, I bought something. On recommendation but i i did a twist on it oh okay it's a string winder drill bit that's brilliant yeah it was like 10 bucks 
had really good reviews on Amazon, and it's got the same type of split peg thing. Because I was looking at it, you uh, you guilted me into uh, considering a uh, robotic tuner. But I saw this thing, I was like, oh man, that's a good idea. So <laughs> I'm gonna try it out tomorrow, maybe. Do it, man. I'm telling you, it's gonna change your life. No doubt. All right, looks like uh, Nate's got a question. So I posted a follow up to him. Um, oh yeah, yeah, go for it. I lost the chat for some. Oh, okay, here we go. Okay, establishing my own recording studio wants to invest in some affordable recording mics. Room mics and something for cabinets mainly. Yeah, we could tackle that. Um, so I love the... I guess we could each go through our recommendations. So let me start with drums. Um, I love the Shure Beta 52. That's a great kick drum mic. Captures low end really good. That's also good for... You could potentially even use that on vocals too, but bass cabs for sure. Maybe even some guitar cabs. I've never tried it on a guitar cab, but you, I'm I'm definitely a big fan of buying the mics, um, buying mics that are really good for multiple sources. So I don't have like a ton of different mics. I have maybe let me think of how many different ones I have. I maybe only have. 15 mics total for that's a lot <laughs> it is a lot it is a lot but i also will put 14 microphones on a drum kit so right right yeah every single one of my microphones is simultaneously usable for drums guitars vocals and all those things so if you think about it that way it's not really that many different mics yeah fair enough um so yeah, on drums, I love using, uh, for toms, I use the Sennheiser E60, E604, I believe. They're the clip-on style ones. You can buy a pack of three for, I think it's $270 or something like that. Sometimes you can get them for cheaper than that on, like, holiday sales. And, uh, yeah, stuff like that. But another technique that I like to use as well is uh, sure. SM57 on the snare along with one of those E604 microphones clamped on, and I'll blend them in 50-50 because they really complement each other. Uh, I also have for overheads, I use small diaphragm condensers, AKG170P, I think, are the models that I have. They're not very expensive. They're like $100 each, and they sound great. Um, mm-hmm. Couple different mic. I'll talk about a couple different microphones that I have for vocals that I really like. So, I love having this SM7B because it's a really versatile mic, and I think that it is more forgivable um, for people that aren't. I don't want to say that aren't the best vocalists, but maybe don't have as pretty of a high end to their voice. Because some vocalists, mm. they just have a really nice, um, sparkly, shiny, high end glean to their tone and other vocalists don't have that. And that's totally fine. I would be one of those vocalists. And I think that you can just get away with some, maybe not as stellar performances on an SM7B than you can with a large diaphragm condenser, because sometimes large diaphragm condensers, they're too sensitive and they'll pick up all the, they're really good at picking up all the nuances in voices and that can be a good or bad thing, because if your vocalist is amazing, then it can bring out all those subtleties 
But if your vocalist isn't as good, it's going to capture all the things that maybe nasally bad tones and stuff like that. I don't know. What do you think about that, right. Vadim? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it, it comes down to also what kind of music you're planning on working on. I've more and more become a fan of getting one or maybe two good mics and using them on everything rather than having 10 mediocre mics and just being like, I have a lot of mics, you know, it looks impressive. Yeah. Open up, open up your trench coat and you got a lot of mics. <laughs> like there, that, that sounds cool at first, but, um, you know, and I kind of got this, I, I, I remember I took a course with a producer named Jordan Sapp out of Nashville. He works on a lot of famous pop stuff that you've heard of. And, um, he's got one microphone in the studio. He's got a manly reference. Now he's doing mostly vocal production. He's doing mostly electronic music and pop music that's already been produced. He's doing mostly vocal recording. But he said, yeah, this is an awesome mic. It's like a $3,000 mic or something like that. And he uses it on hip hop, on pop, male vocals, female vocals, because it's a good mic. That's his strategy. And I was, you know, I was kind of like more and more I'm moving towards that where like I can't afford a manly reference mic. And probably neither can most people, but I like the idea of having like two or three really solid mics and just using them on everything. Yeah, I agree with that. Quality over quantity. I do really like yeah, my, sure. um, I just bought um, the Slate VML, VMS ML1 microphone. And that's the one, that's a really cool one. It's like half analog, half digital. I think I talked about that one before. Um, yeah, yeah. So it emulates a whole bunch of different... Still like, using it? Yeah, I haven't been recording as much. I mean, with us all being locked in our homes and stuff, but <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, still, I'm still using it. I, I love it because it's really good at honing in. It, it helps me hone in quicker, too, on what type of mic is going to work better on, on a vocal as well. So, like, I can test out something you know, pretty quickly because it's basically just a virtual plugin that you, you bring up and then you can instantly cycle through seven different mic microphones. You're like, oh, yep, that sounds the best. And then I'll just put that on. Like, I think it sounds amazing for the price. I think it's, cool. it's not super cheap. How much did I pay for that? I'm looking it up real quick. I don't quick. think it's that much. No, it's not. It's, it's $500 brand new. So it's not the cheapest thing ever, but like I look at it, you know, I have, six or seven different microphones I can flip between. So it's basically like paying 75 bucks per microphone. So it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you do it, if you, if you look at it that way, for sure. Yeah, that's cool. I like that one. Um, I'll, uh, I'll use SM57. I always use a 57 on a guitar cab. I mean, you can't yep. really go wrong with that. And I love doing, I know Vadim has a different technique, but I'll um, simultaneously put, a small diaphragm condenser pointed straight at the cone and I'll blend that in along with um the 57 I like doing that as well we should do a shootout I, I was I do want to do a shootout at some point of a neural DSP thing and a live amp but it would be better to do with the actual live amp that's being emulated I don't think I own have plugins no i did see uh you know fortin amplifiers yeah they just released a mini head i'm a big fan of these mini head lunchbox amps 
They're um, really great for a home studio and just, just jamming out because they get awesome tones. They're not super duper loud. Like you can get, you can saturate the tubes at reasonable volumes. They're still pretty freaking loud. They still hold up at a live show. Um, but they're also pretty affordable. Like I said, I was saying I bought the 6505 mini head. That was only, you know, that was like 400 bucks or something. Sounds awesome. And so Fortin just came out with one that's a little more expensive. It's like 1300 bucks, but Fortin, for those of you who don't know, they, uh, Mike Fortin, I think is the guy he designed like the original Meshuga amps where it was like a modded Marshall oh. or something like that. Um, they're pretty brutal amps. I don't need it, Ben. I'm not, I'm not going to get it, but, <laughs> but I was looking at it the other day. My wife and I are both working from home and she looks over at my monitor and I'm just like watching a shootout of a guy just or jamming out on this, uh, this Marshall oh amp. And she's like, what are you doing? You don't need a guitar amp. It's like, you're right. I don't. No, man. That's why I'm all into plugins. Like for a long time, I wanted to get some really nice cabs in my studio, but I just get so much more traction out of the, <laughs> I feel like this is going to be really funny, but like, I feel like there's nothing that I can do in my studio with plugins or with virtual amplifiers that somebody that has really nice amps can do except for one thing. And that's get really good feedback. You just need a live amp in the room to get really good feedback. It's just, and it looks ridiculous trying to hold up your guitar to your monitors to try to get. That would look ridiculous. <laughs> so that's one thing I can't do, but I can live, I can live without that. He said, are you sure? Yeah. Are you I'm sure? positive? I'm positive. Yeah. No, I, this is why I'm saying like, I, I do want to do the test because I love the sound I'm getting out of these plugins now. I really do. And I want to see. I can get better sounds with an amp because there's still people that swear by it. You know, there's still people that swear amps are better. And I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think they're better too, but you know what? 0.05% better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. It's certainly a lot closer than it used to be. Right. So that's the question is how close is it? I think the thing was too, and we talked about this on our last live stream, but um, the thing that was off before that made, virtual guitar amp sounds so weird was the cab emulation, the impulse responses. And I think that right. these companies are getting that better and better. They're emulating better the way that sound waves are physically traveling through the, the air to get to a microphone that just move movement of air, um, is kind of what was missing, you know? Yeah. So I think they're, I think they're getting it down, but I hope that answered your question, Nate. I mean, we just randomly threw some micro microphones out there. Did you have any yeah, more to add to that? Yeah, we started talking about guitars for some reason. <laughs> Did you have any other microphones that you like to use that you want to throw in there? I'm a big fan of the warm audio stuff if you're looking for condenser mics. I've bought two large diaphragm condensers from them. Warm Audio is a company that builds kind of emulations of famous gear. So, for example, the Neumann 87 is one of the most famous vocal mics ever. It's a really coveted mic. So it's super expensive. Warm Audio basically reverse engineers the circuit and use the same components. And that microphone I got is called the WA87. It's like an $800 microphone, which is expensive, but it's a really nice sounding large diaphragm condenser. That's currently my go-to for vocals. So in general, I'm a big fan of Warm Audio stuff. I just really love their philosophy where they like, they don't skimp on quality. They use awesome components, and their build quality is really nice. Um, 
but it's still affordable. So I'm a big fan of that company. Cool. I think we might call it, guys. We've been, uh, you know, we spent the first 45 minutes trying to get the video to work, and then, you know, another 40, another 45 <laughs> hanging out with all of you. <laughs> but um, hope you guys enjoyed. And, um, you know, if you wanted to follow up with anything else or check out anything else that we've got going on, we've got the DIY Recording Guys uh, page. I think a few of you are also members there, and you're watching here in the DIY Recording Guys community. So, um, yeah, we've got those things going on. We've also got an Instagram account. Uh, Vadim, what is the handle on the Instagram? Super easy. DIY Recording Guys. And definitely check us out there because, first of all, we need more followers. But also, it's very cool. We, um, we post little snippets like the notes from each episode. So, you know, episodes can be 50 minutes long to an hour long. And if you just want to get the bite-sized wisdom nuggets, you can get those on our Instagram page. And I'll pitch also the episode that's coming up this Monday, super important. It's Acoustics 101. We're talking about Acoustics Basics. Really good episode. It's building up to our special Acoustics guest who's going to give us some really awesome tips. And um, anyway, we're really looking forward to that. So that goes live this Monday, early morning. Looking forward to it too. All right, guys. Well, I think we're going to log off. Have a good evening, and we'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for hanging out with us a bit. Have a happy weekend, happy Friday, and get some music done. Why not? Exactly. All right. See you guys. See you.